Well, good morning again. Good morning. It's so different. I can't remember the last time that I wasn't doing the welcome and the other parts of the service as well. It's so exciting to be able to actually just sit down for the first half of the service. Today we're going to be continuing in our series on the book of Mark. And I don't know about you, but I, this series has been very exciting for me so far. And it's exciting because Mark really gets to the point. I'm not sure if you've noticed how often in the last couple of weeks that a verse has started with the word immediately or just then or at once. But if you look back for the, through the first couple chapters, that word immediately is used a lot, right? Immediately this happened and then immediately that happened and then immediately this happened. It's like an action movie with no breaks for that cheesy romance stuff, right? It's just action after action, lots of content very quickly. Uh, Quite frankly, I find the book of Mark thrilling because of this. Now, we're only three chapters in and already... (coughs) Pardon me, sorry. Already, we've covered a lot about what it means to be a disciple or follower of Jesus, Josiah took us through the first chapter of the book, talking about the disciples' call and their commissioning, but also their consequences. He talked about the difference between a selfish follower and a selfless follower. And then last week, Jim looked at chapter 2, where we saw some practical demonstrations of some followers in action, and also the beginnings of opposition against Jesus and the work he was doing. Well, today we're going to be continuing in some similar themes in Mark chapter 3. And if you have a Bible with you and you want to open up, we're going to be starting at verse 7 of Mark chapter 3 in just a moment. We're all connecting back to the idea of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Now, I have a friend, and he's training to be an electrician. Uh, I Personally, I will admit, I don't know a lot about the trades because I chose the route where you pay tens of thousands of dollars for seven years of university and then just get a couple fancy pieces of paper at the end. So I know very little about the trades, but my friend, his name is actually Mark, which I think is funny uh, since we're looking at this book today. He's training to be an electrician and it's been really cool talking to him and learning a little bit about the process of an electrical apprenticeship. So Mark got hired by a company, and at the very beginning, he's just learning the basics um, of some electrical work. And then after a little while, he gets to go to school for a bit, but just for a short term. He learns some things at school, and then he comes back to his job and gets to put into practice the things that he's learned. Then after a while, he goes back to school again, and then comes back to his job, back and forth, um, and eventually, he'll work towards the point of becoming a licensed electrician. But the most important part of this whole process is that he is working directly under someone who already is a licensed electrician. He learns from watching that electrician. He learns from being taught by that electrician. And when he comes back from school with some new knowledge, he is supervised by that electrician who takes responsibility for his actions. When it comes to electrical work, you can't just read a book, watch some videos online, or take a class and then go out into the world as a licensed electrician. You get to know how to be one by apprenticing under someone who already is one. And in a similar mindset today, as we look at Jesus in the book of Mark, 
Today what we're going to see, and it's kind of the big idea for today, is that knowing about Jesus is not the same as knowing Jesus. Knowing about Jesus is not the same as knowing Jesus. And that begs the question of, how do we know Jesus? Well, as we look at our text today, we're going to read about how to know Jesus, how to be his disciple, his follower, and even part of his spiritual family. We're going to see this played out through some quick interactions with five groups. There's some crowds, there's a group of impure spirits, there's the twelve disciples or apostles, uh, there's some teachers of the law, and we actually get an interaction with Jesus and his own earthly family. We're going to break it up in some smaller chunks, so let's start. Uh, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 7. Now verse 7 starts out with, Jesus withdrew. If you remember where we left off at the end of last week, we just read that the Pharisees and the Herodians were plotting to kill Jesus. And so, the next verse, so Jesus withdrew. Verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell anyone about him. At this point, word of Jesus has spread throughout the entirety of the surrounding lands. And i got to imagine, that's what happens when a paralyzed man walks. Right? Word spreads when demons are cast out. Word spreads when leprosy and weird shriveled hand diseases are healed in front of people's eyes. Everyone is hearing about Jesus and the incredible things he is doing, and they want some too. It says in verse 10, He had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. They're convinced if they can just touch him, they will be healed. And really, if you think about it, it's an interesting image. A crowd of sick, diseased people pressing forward. Now, many of these people would have been ceremonially unclean according to the laws of Judaism because of their diseases. But apart from that, I got to imagine that some of these people were probably just pretty icky, right? We got skin diseases, open wounds that are maybe like seeping, right? These are not clean people. Wounds, illnesses, right? Coughing, probably. And as I was thinking about this, I thought about my own life, and I like to go to concerts. And we're not talking like Taylor Swift at the ACC where you have like your assigned seat and you sit there and enjoy the show. And no offense to those of you who love that. Uh, that's not my deal. I like going to concerts, and a lot of the shows that I go to are in small, I'll say it, kind of dirty venues, uh, music halls, uh, concert halls, and they are packed with people standing in one big crowd. And when the music starts, there is no such thing as personal space, right? Everyone's moving around, maybe jumping, waving their arms, singing, Maybe even crowd surfing. I've been hit more than once in the head by someone's foot as they fly over top of me. 
At these concerts, there's always at least one person who looks different than the rest. Every single show I've been to. And I don't know if this guy just has a crazy metabolism or if he's working harder than everyone else. But there's always, at every show, at least one guy who looks like he's stepped out of a shower in his clothes and everything. Like, he is soaked with sweat. And it's disgusting. But when you're in the midst of the show with the adrenaline pumping and the energy around you, everyone's having a good time, you don't think much of it if the disgusting, sweaty guy bumps into you because everyone's just having a great time. But when you leave the shows, you know, when I'm on my drive home, the adrenaline's died down, and suddenly I just have this moment of, ugh, like, I need to get into a shower now because I'm covered in everybody else. All Everybody else is all over me. And I imagine that this was a similar crowd, where no one really cares how gross everyone else is, because they're all gross, right? No one really cares how disgusting it is, because they're just so excited and hopeful at the opportunity and the chance at being healed. But I imagine if you were an observer of this crowd, you'd probably look out and just go, ugh. Right? Like, gross. Like, get me away. I don't want to go in there. Like, I'll stay back and listen and watch, but I don't want to have anything to do with that. The crowd here is thick. People are flocking from far and wide, (coughs) looking for miracles. They're looking for healing. They're looking for exorcisms. Much like Josiah talked about a couple weeks ago, though, this was understandable, right? In the first century, if you had an illness or a disease or an injury and you heard about someone that could heal you, I mean, of course you're going to go find him. Of course you're going to try to get healed. But as Josiah mentioned as well, they're kind of also missing the point a little bit. Jesus said he came to preach. But what we see here in the actions of the crowd, the way they press in to the point that Jesus literally had to have a boat so that he could escape from them pressing in, It shows that they care a lot more about what he can do rather than what he has to say. Right? They care a lot more about what he can do rather than what he has to say. And it's that contrast that we see between a selfless and a selfish follower of Jesus. And there's little doubt here that this crowd is following to get something. See, they know information about Jesus. Right? They know he can heal. He can cast out demons. But their knowledge of him is incomplete. And it's a misunderstanding of who he truly is because Jesus is more than a healer. Knowing what Jesus can do is not the same as knowing him. Knowing what Jesus can do is not the same as knowing him. Next we see a brief interaction between Jesus and some people possessed by impure spirits. If you want to look back at verse 11... Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. It's interesting that these spirits actually understand more about Jesus' identity than most of the crowds. They not only know what Jesus can do, but they know who he is. They know who he is and what he can do, and I've got to imagine they knew they were severely outmatched by the Son of God. And yet their response, rather than submission, is to try and hinder Jesus' work. 
right? In verse 12, he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. It wasn't time for people to be told who Jesus was. Alan Cole, a commentator I was reading, explains that Jesus wanted people to understand who he was by listening to his words and observing his actions. He had enough people following him for selfish reasons based on thinking of him as a healer. Can you imagine how many more people would have followed if word got out that this guy was the Son of God? We see another distinction here. Being aware of Jesus' identity does not make you his disciple. Knowing that Jesus is the Son of God does not make you his follower. Or, to phrase it another way, knowing who Jesus is is not the same as knowing him. We now reach a section where the tone switches. See, much of what we've read in the last few weeks up to this point has demonstrated a misunderstanding of Jesus and his mission. But here we're going to see very clearly laid out the opposite of that. So we're going to pick up in Mark chapter 3, verse 13, and read the next section. (coughs) Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have the authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To him he gave the name Boanerges. Probably pronouncing it wrong. Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. We see that what Jesus' desire for the twelve is, right near the beginning, verse 14. He appointed twelve of them that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and cast out demons. The role of the disciples was to spend time with Jesus, connecting with him, observing him, learning from him, and then to go out and do what they saw him doing, preaching and caring for people. If you think back to my friend Mark, who's working on his electrical apprenticeship, no one starts an apprenticeship with the intention of never using the skills that they've learned. Right? You don't start an apprenticeship just to learn new information and then say, okay, cool, I know how to do electrical work now. Better go back to my job in sales. Right? Better go back to my job in the office. No, you start an apprenticeship so that one day you can be an electrician. Or to put it maybe into more of our context, and I've talked about this before, but if we come to church week after week and listen to these messages, but never let it change the way we live our lives, we're kind of missing the point as much as an electrician who does an apprenticeship and then doesn't see that career through. Right? An essential part of being a disciple and follower of Jesus is going out and sharing his love, his truth, in our words and our actions. But before we can do that, what we see here is we have to know him. We have to be with him. The two are inextricably linked. We see even in the first calling of the disciples back in Mark chapter 1, 17, Jesus says, come, follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. 
right? It starts with, follow me, and I will send you out. Follow me, and I will send you out. How can we hope to go out and be an accurate representation of Jesus to the world if we aren't following him, if we don't truly know him? Knowing Jesus is essential to living out our calling and commissioning as Jesus followers. Knowing Jesus is essential to living out our calling and commissioning as Jesus followers. We're going to continue into the next section. This one's a little bit longer, verse 20 to 30. (coughs) Pardon me, sorry. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided... He cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, He has an impure spirit. This section starts out with a discussion of Jesus' family. See, Jesus and his disciples are again swarmed by another crowd. And Jesus spends so much time preaching and healing and casting out demons that he doesn't even have time to eat. His family has gotten word of this, and they're understandably concerned, right? It's concerning if your family isn't eating. Natasha and I have both been known to get so focused on something that we're doing, that we forget to eat. Those of you who follow me on Instagram and know that I post about food all the time probably don't believe that I could ever possibly forget a meal, but it's true. You you might know the days. You, You don't start the day intending to skip lunch, but then you get so into your work, or maybe it's a project or something you're doing, and you think, well, I'll just finish this part, and then I'll take a break. right? But then your momentum is going. You're like, oh, I just want to keep going. I'm on a roll. I want to keep going. And the next thing you know, it's way too late to even consider having lunch because you're going to ruin your dinner. What's funny in our house is, as I mentioned, Natasha and I have both been known to have this happen to us. And yet, whenever one of us tells the other that we forgot or we skipped a meal, whether it's me telling Natasha or Natasha telling me, the response is always sort of like a light, disappointed chastising. You know what I'm talking about, like a light, like, oh, honey... Well, that's no good. You've got to eat. You've got to take care of yourself. We'll say this to each other, with the lesson being we obviously are better at giving advice than taking our own advice. But here, Jesus' family's response is a little more than that light, disappointed chastising, right? Quite simply, they thought that he had lost it. They thought he had lost his mind. See, they didn't understand what he was doing or saying or why he was doing it. 
So they were convinced that they had to come and take charge of him. This is a phrase that was used when someone was physically seized or taken or arrested. They were trying to forcibly protect him from himself and what they thought was becoming a dangerous career path. Then Mark does something interesting in the text, and you may have picked up on, and it's something he does a number of times throughout his writing. It's where he puts one topic on hold and then switches to another topic that on the surface might not seem super related before eventually returning to the initial topic. And in this case, Jesus, or sorry, Mark puts Jesus' family on hold and instead goes into a discussion of Jesus interacting with some teachers of the law. Now, interestingly enough, these people also <clears throat> think he's out of his mind, but rather than attributing it to overwork, they say and they accuse Jesus of being possessed by Satan, by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. This is a very interesting accusation. These teachers would have been experts in the law, right? They were well studied in the scriptures, what we now refer to as the Old Testament. They had been studying for years and looking for signs of the coming Messiah. If anyone should have recognized Jesus for who he truly was, it was probably them. And yet here we see they are so blinded, maybe by their fear or their judgment or their misunderstanding, whatever it was, they're so blinded that they fully abandon logic and reason by essentially saying, I hear you're casting out demons. You must be working with the demons. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> you're casting... I hear you're casting out demons. You must be working with the demons. Of course. That makes sense. When I picture this, I don't know, I can't help but imagine that, you know, Jesus is preaching and healing. The crowds are thick. The, the, the teachers of the law probably couldn't get in very far. So they're probably standing at the back heckling him like... He is possessed, right? He's possessed by Satan. He's working with the demons. He's a witch. Burn him. And yet we read that Jesus says, or it says that Jesus called them over and began to talk to them in parables. It sounds like he's calm and composed. And he basically just explains what you're saying makes no sense. Why would demons cast out demons? Why would Satan be against himself? If a kingdom is divided and fights against itself, it falls. He's effectively saying, quite plainly, if these demons are from Satan, and I am casting them out, clearly the logical conclusion is that I am against Satan. Right? But he takes it a little bit further in verse 27. He says, In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. <coughs> then he can plunder the strong man's house. You can't take a strong man's things unless you overpower and restrain him. And in this case, Satan is the strong man. He has power and residence on the earth. And Jesus is saying, if you wish to plunder him, if someone wishes to plunder Satan, he must be overpowered and restrained. In other words, what Jesus' actions have really shown is not only was he not working with Satan, but he is stronger than Satan. He is stronger than the one that they accuse him of working with. 
And then Jesus continues and goes into what I've heard referred to as one of the scariest passages of Scripture, the idea of an unforgivable sin. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Now, plenty of theologians have explained this topic using variations of the same phrase. Quite simply, if you are concerned that you may have committed the unforgivable sin, you haven't. Because if you had, you wouldn't care. Quite simply. Because what Jesus is talking about isn't an isolated action that one commits. It's not like, hey, I'm a Christian now, but back in college I might have blasphemed the Holy Spirit, so now God can't forgive me. But instead it's more the idea of continually denying God's power or hardening your heart against the Holy Spirit, like we see in the Pharisees, like we see in Pharaoh in the Old Testament, choosing to harden our heart against God's forgiveness and opportunities. Or another way of thinking about it, God has offered all of us forgiveness through Jesus, as Mike talked about this morning. If we choose to reject forgiveness, we can't be forgiven. Right? Rejecting forgiveness means you are unforgivable. When God offers a method of being forgiven and you deny that method, you are not forgiven. If you deny Jesus, his forgiveness does not affect you. Here Jesus gives them this warning to point them to the truth. Because even if they know that he was casting out demons through the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing what Jesus has done is not the same as knowing him. Knowing what Jesus has done is not the same as knowing him. We're going to return now to Jesus' family as we finish out the chapter, starting in verse 31 of Mark chapter 3. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. This would be a great one for our topic last year. Remember when we did, Jesus said, what? It's like, who is my mother and my brothers? These are my mother and my brothers. Sorry, what, Jesus? Now, Jesus is not against family, and nor is he truly rejecting his family here. Instead, he is using his family's misunderstanding as a teaching moment to explain what knowing him really looks like. First of all, we see that a relationship with Jesus isn't automatic or assumed. It comes from a willingness to be with him. We see a contrast here. On one hand, <coughs> we have Jesus' family standing outside, calling for him to come out to them to do what they think that he should do. Then on the other hand, you have the, another crowd, only this one's a bit different than before. They're seated. They're listening. They're learning. They're getting to know him. Jesus goes so far as to say they are doing God's will and to call them his family. And I gotta be honest, as I read this this week, 
I couldn't help but ask myself and feel a little bit convicted, asking myself, in my life, am I standing outside calling for Jesus to come and do what I think is best? Or am I seated at his feet? Are we standing outside calling for Jesus to come out to us and do what we want him to do? Or are we seated at his feet and listening, learning, knowing him? At this point, at least in the story, Jesus' own family didn't truly know him the way I'm describing. The people who, in theory, should have known him best misunderstood their relationship with him. They had good intentions when they called out to him. They were concerned and they thought they knew what was best. It came from a good place. And the same goes for us when we call out to Jesus and ask for him to do the things that we think are best. And please hear me, I am not at all saying that we shouldn't bring our requests and our hopes and our dreams and our desires before Jesus. Absolutely we should. But when what we want from Jesus becomes more important than being with him, I would say that we too are misunderstanding. When what we want from Jesus is more important than knowing him, I think we too are misunderstanding. Are we calling him to come out to us or are we laying our requests at his feet? Knowing what we think Jesus should do is not the same as knowing him. As I conclude this morning, you'll remember a few minutes ago, I talked about how sometimes Mark will switch from one topic to another topic and then come back to the first topic. Uh, Josiah taught me that that's called a Markin sandwich. That's what theologians call it, a Markin sandwich. It's like two pieces of bun with the meat in the middle. And at first, sometimes these topics don't look like they're immediately connected, but when you dig a little bit deeper, usually they are. We have these two groups of people, the teachers of the law and Jesus' earthly family. These two groups arguably had the best opportunities to truly know him. Out of anyone, they're the ones who should have got it. Right? I mean, the crowds, we can't really fault them. They needed healing and they saw a healer. Of course, they're not immediately going to understand. But the teachers of the law... The people studying Messiah. Or Jesus' mother, the woman who was told, you will give birth to a son and he will be called Son of the Most High. They had the best setup, the best access, and the best shot at truly knowing Jesus. And yet at this point in the story, they've missed it. And through that, we come to some interesting truths. What we see is that their genealogy and their religiosity did not save them. To put it in our terms, being raised in a Christian family does not mean that you necessarily know Jesus. Coming to church does not mean that you know Jesus. Reading the Bible, singing worship songs, listening to sermons, doing devotionals, serving the poor, all incredible things that are part of following Jesus, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you know Jesus. Instead, who does Jesus call family here? Who knows him? It's the ones doing exactly what he called his disciples to earlier in the text. The ones who are being with him so that they can go out and do God's will. 
Right? They're being with him. They're spending time in his presence. They're talking with him, learning from him, watching him, all for the purposes of going out and demonstrating his love and his truth to others. So I'm going to ask the question. It's one that we all need to ask ourselves. Do I know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Now you might be thinking, Andrew, it's different now. Jesus isn't here. How can we possibly know him like those people did 2,000 years ago? Sure. Jesus isn't physically walking around the earth, casting out demons and healing people. Right? I mean, if he was, I'd be following around looking for the feeding of the 5,000, you know, multiplying that food. I'd be so down. We can't walk up to a house and physically go and sit at his feet and learn from him. But we have this book which allows us to watch him, different than any other book there is or has ever been. It allows us to watch him. It allows us to hear from him. It allows us to learn from him. And we have been giving the power of the Holy Spirit available to us so that we can connect with him. We can worship him. We can talk to him pray to him. The fact that we were not alive in the first century does not in any way disqualify us from an intimate, real, knowing relationship with the person of Jesus. And so I'll ask it again. Do you know Jesus? If the answer is no, you have a choice before you. You can continue living as the crowds and the religious leaders and even Jesus' family did, knowing things about Jesus but not truly knowing him. Or you can decide today to change that and say, I want to know Jesus. If the answer is yes, I do know Jesus, you can ask yourself, as I have this week, could I know him more? Could I know him more intimately? Could I know more about him? Because knowing about him is also an important part of knowing him. It's just not the whole part. You can ask yourself, am I on the outside calling in, or am I seated at the feet of Jesus? Let's pray. One that has had me convicted this week as one who often stands outside just asking you to do what I want, rather than spending time with you, getting to know you better. Father, I pray that the conviction that seizes my heart now will will convict others in here as well, that together as a church, we can grow closer to you. We can become more like you. We can spend more time with you. Jesus, I can't imagine what it would look like if we as a church were a group of people seated at your feet. What could that look like? So Jesus, as we leave from here, as we go and we maybe celebrate Thanksgiving, I thank you that you have come for us. Father God, I thank you that you sent Jesus to die for us, not as some distant God, but as someone we can know. So God, help us this week to know you better. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.